Um, we continue in chapter two of the book of Ruth, and um, just a recap, um, Naomi and Ruth, um, Naomi is, is the um, older widow, and she and her husband Elimelech had gone because of famine to the land of Moab. And um, there, and she brought her two sons who had married Moabite women, and uh, Elimelech died, and also the sons died, and Naomi is now going back to Israel and uh, empty-handed. And Orpah, one of the daughters, her daughters-in-law, decides to stay, but, Na- um, but Ruth goes with her. And so uh, that's where we end of Ruth coming back with Naomi um, to the land. And so we pick up then with chapter 2. So hear God's word to us this morning from chapter 2 of the book of Ruth. So now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain, after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come upon the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to a young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers said, She is a young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean among, and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she, was, she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz and Ruth, Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go and glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping, and go after them. I have, not, have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should notice me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz said to her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to the people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and for and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not among your servants. And at mealtime Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. And so she ate beside the reapers, and he passed her her roasted grain, And she ate until she was satisfied, and she came, and she had some left over. And when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some of the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening, 
And then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley, which is about 30 pounds. And she took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw that what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I worked is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young women until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest another in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, get gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we give you thanks for this story, um, for your word, for the ways in which you speak to us um, through the lives of your saints, through the lives of others. Lord, we do pray for the eyes of faith to be able to look at our own lives and to see where you're at work to see where your kindnesses lay, to see where you're speaking to us through others. Lord, wherever we find ourselves this morning, whether in um, despair or frustration or um, perhaps apathy, wherever we find ourselves, we ask that you would move towards us and help us to see that you are, you are the God who is always seeking out his loving purposes in the lives of your people. So help us to know how to respond. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Last week we began exploring the doctrine of God's providence through the story of Naomi and Ruth. And this week we continue. And it's helpful to remember what providence means and and a helpful definition of that was from, I gave you last week, in the way that the Heidelberg Catechism defines providence. It's not in your worship folder, but I'll read it to you. Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds with a hand heaven and earth and all creatures, so, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and providence. All things, in fact, come to us, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Providence means God is involved in all the details of our lives, the tiny details, guiding and directing the whole course of our life to their ordained ends that he has for them. Providence means that nothing happens that escapes his notice. Nothing can thwart or frustrate or block his ultimate designs and ends for us. And those ends, or that end, is loving fellowship with him. 
So that is the doctrine of providence in a nutshell. But it's one thing to have the category and a definition of providence, the concept of it. It's another thing to know what it means to live in the light of the reality of God's providence. How does knowledge that God is in control of all the details of my life help us? If he is in control of all things, what is there for us to do? How should we respond? What benefit does the knowledge of God's providence have for us? How does it work itself out practically? Now, when you're in a situation like Ruth and Naomi, where life is difficult and it's perilous, a doctrine can be a cold comfort. So the question is, how do we live in the light of God's providential care? And that's my goal this morning, to try to work out the practical uh, aspects of providence, of what it means for us to respond and to, to be aware of it. And I love the story of, of Naomi and Ruth. I mean, stories are so important, which is why more than half of the Bible is filled with stories and not just um, uh, reflections on, on theology. Stories make things concrete. They put flesh on the bones. And the story of Naomi and Ruth is a remarkable one of God's providence. And I want you to recall their situation, right? So remember that Naomi returns from Israel and she sums up her situation this way. I, I, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. If you want to understand what the book of Ruth is about, it's really, it's a reversal of Naomi's statement. It's how God brings Naomi and Ruth from a place of emptiness to a place of fullness. And that's what that's what the, the book is, is about. We already saw hints in chapter 1, little shadows perhaps, or glimpses of light of how God was going to do this, but, but largely uh, chapter 1 ends on a sour note, a bitter note, in fact. What God is going to do is completely hidden from Naomi and Ruth. They can't see it. But in chapter 2, what we see is God's plot line begins to emerge through a series of little coincidences and a little kindnesses. Now before we explore the story, I, I want to just address a, a, a misunderstanding of the doctrine of providence that will lead us into understanding this story. Brothers and sisters, the doctrine of providence is not a doctrine of fatalism. The doctrine of providence is not a doctrine of fatalism. One of the distortions of providence is that is one that takes a fatalistic perspective of one's life. Where we say, well, if God is in control of all things, what is there for me to do? And when we have this fatalistic perspective, there's a tendency to, to um, you know, to think like God is going to do what God's going to do, right? And I simply just have to accept that, hand, that fact. I have to accept the hand that the Almighty has dealt me. You perhaps have heard the, the joke about the Calvinist who... Um, falls down a flight of stairs, and then he gets up and he says to himself, man, I'm glad that's over with. You know, <laughs> I'll let it sink in. <laughs> See, there's a sense oftentimes we live in life and you're like, well, uh, these things are ordained, and I just have to learn to accept them, right? And I'm glad I'm through it. And when you live in the shadow side of providence, when it feels as if God is frowning upon you, it's very easy to become fatalistic. And really deep down, um, a, a fatalistic attitude 
is, is in our hearts is a sign of our own anger and bitterness towards God, a sense of resignation, a sense that, hey, I'm damned if I do, I'm damned if I don't, right? And what this can do sometimes is lead us to a place of passivity or inactivity, a sense in which my actions don't matter, you know, God's going to do what God's going to do, and, and we, we get stripped of a sense of, of our own agency, that what I do matters, and so we have this sense of resignation towards life. And, and what I've just described to you is a cynical worldview. This is the worldview of a cynic. But this, again, is a distortion of the doctrine of providence. The doctrine of providence is not a doctrine of fatalism. God's providence does not cancel out the meaningfulness of our agency and of our choices. God's providence does not let us off the hook from taking responsibility for the circumstances of our life. Quite the opposite. Providence means my actions matter, that my decisions and my choices matter, that I can live towards the future with a sense of hope. Why? Because as Paul says in Romans 8, I know that all things work for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. While I may not understand how all the pieces of my life fit together, while I might not understand the suffering that I'm going through, I know that ultimately nothing falls to the ground in my life that God does not pick up. Nothing falls to the ground that doesn't get redeemed. Nothing is ultimately futile and meaningless. See, when you're in a place of resignation uh, and fatal, uh, kind of a fatalistic attitude, oftentimes you can be paralyzed to even act. Because you don't think there's anything you can do to change the situation, so you just sort of accept it. But providence, providence endows the world of my actions and my choices with promise and with meaningful possibility. Again, Paul says in Ephesians 2, quite remarkably, we are God's workmanship, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared ahead of time beforehand that we might walk in them. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works, and he, God prepared ahead of time that we might walk in them. The first step of living in the light of God's providence is taking full responsibility for our lives. To live as if everything matters, but to live without anxiety. And this is precisely what you see Ruth and, Mo and, and Naomi doing, right? And Ruth said, the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I might find favor. And Naomi says, go, my daughter. Ruth and Naomi are, are basically homeless, and they're hungry. They have no means of income. And Ruth says, well, I'm going to go out, and I'm going to beat the bushes, literally, and see what I come up with. See if I can get us some food. And maybe somebody will look kindly upon us, and I'll be able to get us a meal for the night. And Naomi's like, yes, do this. Now, as we come to understand, there's a lot of risk involved in uh, Ruth going out by herself into the fields as a foreign woman, as a young woman who's unattached. At best, she could come back empty-handed. At worst, she could be physically assaulted. And so her going out to glean, it's an act of faith. 
It's an act of faith. And so what happens when Ruth takes holy initiative and responsibility for her situation? God shows up. God shows up. And so Ruth, she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers and happened to come upon a part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. I want to draw your attention to a phrase uh, here that's easy to pass over. It's that part of that sentence. This is in chapter, verse 3. She happened to come to the part of the field. Um, I don't think the ESV does a great job of really highlighting that. In the Hebrew, it's literally, she hap- in the Hebrew, it literally says, the happenstance that happened to her was. The happenstance that happened to her was. I think the NIV captures it a little bit better. It says, as it turned out, she came upon the field belonging to Boaz. The narrator here is drawing our attention to what he calls a happenstance of sorts. Um, Ruth got lucky. She just lucked upon this field. But in calling it luck, the author obviously means anything but luck, right? What seems like coincidence here is really providence. And we know this because Boaz has already been foreshadowed at the very beginning of the chapter. This is the very first first line of chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, and whose name was Boaz. Why does the narrator tell us this information? This is not knowledge that, that is spoken through Ruth or Naomi. It's just an observation. But it's an important observation because when she happens upon the field of Boaz, all of a sudden we're like, yes, something's going on here. As it turned out, then, as it turned out is a loaded phrase, suggestive of God's providential plotting. As it turned out, Ruth found herself in Boaz's field. As it turned out, Boaz happened to be an honorable man who would provide for her protection and food. As it turned out, eventually, Boaz would become Ruth's husband. As it turned out, Ruth would conceive a child through Boaz. And as it turned out, this child would be the father of Jesse, who was the great-grandfather of King David. And as it turned out, this family line would ultimately be the one through whom Jesus of Nazareth would come, the long-awaited Messiah. See, there's a great deal of meaning that is bound up in that as it turned out. As it turned out. And it began with Ruth stumbling into the right field. And this is how God works, right? This is how providence works. This is what I meant by the hidden life, that God is working in and amidst and beneath the ordinary circumstances of our lives to work out his purposes and his plan and his good. Even though we don't see the full meaning of it at any point in time, God is at work. And I want to draw your attention to something about the doctrine of providence in its relationship to God as the creator God. Because providence really is an extension of God's activity as the creator. And Ruth's uh, setting is suggestive of this, of the harvest time, uh, during the barley harvest. The context of God's provision for them is in the context of creation itself, of nature. And I think this is important because when when you find yourself in a situation like Naomi and Ruth, where you feel like everything has been taken away from you, 
when you feel empty-handed, perhaps empty-hearted, and you look at your life and you try to imagine what would it mean for me to be get back to a place of fullness, and you have no idea, it seems like complete impossibility, complete irreversibility, this is where understanding God as a creator God, as the one who is providentially at work, is important because as the creator God, he has the power over life and death. God created the world out of nothing, creatio ex nihilo. God did not need to start with something in order to create. He creates out of the nothingness. And this is important in our lives because oftentimes when we lose things that are taken from us through death and loss, there's a sense when you look back and there's like, there's no going back, there's never getting that back. And yet God is the creator God. He is able to go into the nothingness, into the meaninglessness of the loss, and he's able to create out of it because he's the creator God. God makes new possibilities where there seem like none. He brings new options when we thought we had run out of options. He makes meaning out of our miseries. He creates new life out of our losses. This is precisely what he does on the cross when Jesus dies, he goes to the grave, and he is resurrected from the dead. Nothing can ultimately defeat his purposes and his providential care and love, not even death, brothers and sisters. And so perhaps you find yourself in a place in life where it's a sort of a, a no-way-out situation. There's no way out. God is a type of God who loves to create a way out of no way because he is a creator God, and he holds the power of life and death. And he brings new life out of death. Ruth and Naomi's redemption and restoration begins with a series of little coincidences that lead to a series of little kindnesses. So Ruth happens upon the field of Boaz, and she asks permission from the man in charge of the reapers, whether she can, she can glean there. And she proceeds to, to work from morning until perhaps afternoon with very little rest. And Boaz, seeing this woman he does not recognize in his field, is surprised, and he asks about her. And the reaper tells her, this is the Moabitess, this is Ruth, the one who came with Naomi. And so Boaz is, sees her industriousness and, and knows a little bit about her story and begins to engage her in conversation. He has heard the story, and he has an immediate sense of concern for her own welfare, and so he tells her, stick very close to my women, um, and I've told my men not to, 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 uh, to um, reproach you or, or molest you or, or mistreat you. He recognizes that she is quite vulnerable, and so what she's doing, too, is gleaning. Um, in ancient Israel, part of the, the law was that um, landowners were not to, were to leave in the harvest a little bit along the, the edges for the poor and the immigrant to come and glean for themselves. And it was, a, it was a form of social welfare in the ancient world. And so this is what Ruth is doing. She's taking advantage of this custom, but not everybody abided by that law. Some people gleaned everything such there was nothing left. And the fact that Ruth is a Moabitess, one of the most despised... <laughs> Um, enemies of Israel, the idea that a Moabitess would be in a field gleaning, um, that's a dangerous thing. It's very unexpected. And so Ruth, when, when Boaz engages her, is just overwhelmed by his kindness. 
And she falls on her face, she sa- it says, and, and she says, I've found favor in your eyes, Lord, for you have comforted me, and you have spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And Boaz responds, he says, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and you have left your father, how you have left your father and your mother and your native land, and you have come to the people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. By the time Ruth leaves that evening, she is carrying a 30-pound sack of barley. She's received more favor and kindness from this man that she could possibly have hoped for. But she doesn't even quite understand the full extent of her luck, if you will. It's not until she tells Naomi what happened that the situation of kindness gets even deeper Naomi says to her after she tells him who this man is that she was reaping in his field, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi said to her, this man is a close relative, a relative of ours, one of our redeemers. See, Boaz isn't just any kind, uh, you know, landowner that is letting this young foreign woman glean. There is a family connection Um, Next week we'll explore this, the idea of a kinsman redeemer. It's a very specific uh, concept in ancient Israel. But in a a nutshell, that that the future uh, of Naomi and Ruth um, is bound up with the possibility of this man redeeming them. In other words, giving them land and a place and, and a home. And we'll see how that plays out. But I, I want to I draw your attention to something, or I want to qualify something I said last week about how difficult it is for us to, to discern God's purposes in our life, his plans for our life. The spiritual life is a hidden life. God never shows us the full plan. He never shows us the full design. He doesn't tell us, this is what I'm going to do with your life. And, but what we have to do is we just have to trust him from year to year as he works out the plan. But, but to say that the spiritual life is a hidden life and that we don't have a view of the plan, we don't see the big picture of what he's doing, does not mean that we cannot discern his presences and his kindnesses in our life in the day to day as we look backwards, as we see what is right in front of us. We should be able to look at our lives at any particular time and be like Naomi and see God's kindness, his hesed. May the Lord be blessed, she says. May he be blessed, that is, Boaz, by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And she says here, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Is she talking about God or is she talking about Boaz? Well, I think she's talking about both. Naomi sees in the kindness of God's hand through the kindness of Boaz's hand. It would have been very easy for Naomi and Ruth to to take this windfall of barley for granted just to to attribute it to dumb luck or perhaps to say, well, those are the laws of Israel and so that's, that's what we deserve, right? But they don't do this. Both of them, as you, as you read the story and you look at their character, have an, a sense of incredible gratitude 
for what they have received. Gratitude at the kindness of Boaz. And I think this is a really important point about what it means to live in the light of God's providence. We must live our life with gratitude and thankfulness for the things that we receive, no matter how small they are, no matter how insignificant it might seem. Maybe it's just a sack of barley, but to be thankful. Because God's deliverances always start small. That's how it works. And we are prone to miss them if we don't have thankful hearts. See, the opposite of gratitude is entitlement. And entitlement is a sense that God owes me something, right? God owes me something. It's my right. The world owes me this. I have a right to happiness. I have a right to health. I have a right to prosperity. I have a right to comfort and to security. And when I don't get what I want, when I don't get what I think is rightfully mine and what I deserve, it's very hard for me to appreciate even the things that I do have. And I end up missing all the little signs of God's kindness that are all around me. But thankfulness makes God's presence visible in our lives. Thankfulness is how you begin to see God in the midst of your life. Nothing will make God more uh, inscrutable, more hidden and invisible than a lack of gratitude. But the grateful life is a providential life. The grateful life is one that is attuned to God's care and provision for all the little things. The thankful life, even the small, uh, it appreciates all the little small things that God does for us, all his little kindnesses. One of the most remarkable things about this book is how wholesome, how faithful, how upstanding are all the characters. If it weren't for the fact that there's zero sentimentality in this story, it almost has a kind of hallmark quality to it. I think arguably the book of Ruth is the, the most positive book in the entire Bible when it comes to just the quality of the characters. Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, even the unnamed kinsman redeemer later, and all of them have a kind of integrity about them. It is a story of love, of purity, of domestic blessedness, set against the backdrop of a very cruel and unkind world. And Boaz here, he's described um, as an honorable man. In the Hebrew, I like, is more literally like he is a man of substance. Boaz is a man of substance. And what he does is he embodies hesed, that, that word, that Hebrew word for um, covenant love, faithfulness, loyalty, integrity, mercy, kindness. Boaz, he embodies this, but so does Ruth. She's called in the next chapter a worthy woman. She is also a woman of substance who is faithful through her treatment of Naomi. She is loyal. She is kind. Boaz and Ruth are, men, uh, are a man and a woman of substance. And I draw your attention to this because I think it's really important that the lives of Hesed men and women is the means by which are the channels, if you will, by which God's providential care and love and salvation flow. It's through the Hesed, it is through the righteous actions of God's people that God works out his purposes in the world. 
It is the Hesed of Boaz and Ruth that anticipates the Hesed of Zechariah and Elizabeth, who are described as a righteous man and woman. It is the Hesed of Boaz and Ruth that anticipate the righteousness and the Hesed of Joseph and Mary. Through these ordinary men and women, unknown but faithful, holy, kind, merciful, God brings about the salvation of the world. The story of Ruth represents a light in the midst of darkness. In the opening of the book of Ruth, uh, the narrator tells us a very important thing. He says that this is a story that took place during the time of the judges. This is a very important uh, context in which to interpret this book. The book of Judges chronicles for us one of the most violent and chaotic and wicked periods in the whole history of Israel. And the book ends, this is a, a, a light motif through the whole book, there's this phrase, and the very last sentence of the book of Judges says this, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everybody did what was right in his own eyes. And the very last story of the book of Judges records one of the most horrific things that is ever written about in the scriptures. And it happens in and about Bethlehem. There is a Levite man from Bethlehem who has a young woman, a concubine, who's his wife, that in order to save his own skin, going through the town of Gabeah, he offers this young woman up to be assaulted by a group of men in the city and left for dead. And he cuts her body up into pieces and sends it across all of Israel. And after which ensues a bloody civil war in the light of this. This this is the backdrop of the book of Ruth. This sets the stage for Ruth, which is like a, is a, literally a light shining in the darkness. All this is happening. And it's hard, it's, it's remarkable when you read this story. Because what you have in the story of Ruth is this little island of Hesed, this, this little island in this family of gentleness and kindness and mercy and loyalty and love and integrity. Their story is all the more remarkable given that this is the world in which they're living. They are a little community of Hesed. And I think this is a beautiful picture of what the church is. The church is called to be a community of Hesed, a little island in the midst of the darkness of the world, a place of covenant faithfulness and integrity and kindness and mercy. And Ruth and Naomi and Boaz give us that picture. And the incredible thing is that through the faithfulness of the church and its Hesed love, God accomplishes his providential plotting of the redemption of the world. Naomi has alluded to it, and in the next two chapters of the book, it will be unfolded, but she refers to Boaz as a redeemer, a goel. He will be a redeemer of a sorts for both Naomi and Ruth. And what we see in this chapter is that he embodies hesed love and kindness, the kindness of God towards Ruth and Naomi. He is Hesed in the flesh, if you will. But ultimately, we know that he points beyond himself to another man who is in his own line, Jesus of Nazareth, who is literally 
the kindness of God, the mercy of God, the covenant faithfulness of God in the flesh. Remember what the Gospel of John says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John also says this, he says, all things were made through him. He is the creator God. He is the one who has his hands uh, leading and guiding our lives. All things were made through him, and without him not anything was made that was made. And in him was life, and his life was the light of men. And that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Amen. Father, we thank you that you sent your Son, who is the embodiment of your Hesed love, of your kindness, of your mercy. Lord, we pray that you give us thankful hearts to be able to see the ways in which you exercise your kindness to us every day of our lives. And may we have a sense of hope that you hold our lives and our futures in your hand and that you are directing them to your desired end, which is loving fellowship with you. So free our hearts from anxiety, free our hearts from ingratitude, and enlarge for us the light of your Son that may illuminate our path in this dark world. We pray in his name. Amen.